Welcome to the Outpost Church Podcast. We hope you're challenged and encouraged through this message from our recent Sunday gathering. Enjoy. I might just pray to start. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to be here together and to be um, with you as well. Thank you that you've promise where two or three are gathered that there you are with us and we know that you're here in our midst whether we we sense your presence whether we don't that you you are still here and you're amongst us we we are your people and I pray Lord as we um, love each other tonight that we would see you in each other and um, be built up and encouraged and Lord I pray that as I bring the word tonight that your spirit would be at work speaking and um, breathing life onto what I share. Amen. Let's start with a story in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 1. So this is the night that Jesus was to be betrayed and, um, you know, be falsely accused and have a a sham of a trial and then to, you know, go on to be um, tortured and die for us. Um, So this is what happens earlier in the evening. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon, Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with his towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. This is a a beautiful story and I guess and reality that Jesus what he did with his disciples before he he went to the cross that he washed their feet um I guess my understanding was that they did it before the meal but it says he got up from supper so I don't know like had they started eating and then anyway um that just struck me as I was reading it but I think the general understanding in that culture is because of the dust and the sandal wearing and 
you know, people came in, they were really genuinely dirty, and you're sitting on the floor eating your food. You don't, you know, you've got your dirty feet right there. It's pretty gross because they're sitting sort of eating on the ground or on a low table rather than how we would eat now on higher tables and chairs. And I think, because I think we often, when we, we talk about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, we can romanticize it maybe or like, and even, you know, it's a common thing to do at church camps or event, you know, sometimes they'll do it, oh, we'll get the basins out, we'll wash feet. And, and that's a beautiful thing to do. And I think we still sense the humility involved in both the person washing, but also as the person, the recipient, to receive someone like touching and washing your feet. Even in our culture, you know, there's still that sense of, whoa, like, this is kind of an intimate thing and kind of a, like, gross that you're touching my feet. I'm not sure. But also that, yeah we can understand it but I think you know when we do that it's sort of you know it's a it's a picture it's a symbol of something but in that culture in that time it was really like a gross job that you would get a servant to do and it wasn't something people were lining up to do for each other um you probably you know didn't even want to do it for yourself you get someone you know someone lowly to to do that for you so the fact that you know Jesus does this for his disciples on his last sort of time with them, you know, it's really hugely impacting, you know, and he's, I'm sure he lived like this all the time, but, you know, you're weighing every action and word as you've got, you know, less and less time left with these precious people. And it's like, what do you want to say? What do you want to do? What are you trying to convey to them in those final moments that this was something he wanted them to understand and it's interesting, as you read here, you know, we could easily get confused or think that God's just, Jesus is just doing a, um, like a symbolic thing about the cleansing, because he talks about where clearly he's referring to the forgiveness he's going to provide and everything when he says, you know, you're clean, you just need your feet washed, you know, and you need to be clean to have a part with me. So he's obviously talking about those heavenly realities. So you can think, oh, that's what it was all about. It was about kind of conveying this message of, you know, God coming and hum- and what he did. And that's all that it's about. But we get um, corrected quickly because then Jesus himself explains what he's doing. And obviously, like a lot of things he does, it's multi-layered. So he's, he's teaching a few things at the same time. But it says in verse 12... When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So, you know, we're we're quickly corrected if we were starting to get too spiritual about what that whole thing was about, that yes, there's a uh, symbolic spiritual element of the cleansing that he was bringing, but he's giving them an example As the Lord, as the teacher, as the master, he came and served. And, you know, he's called the servant king, and we are called as his children to be like him and to serve each other. And, 
you know, we still, just like the disciples, you know, they had their argument prior to this about who's the greatest. You know, they were wanting to be great. They were wanting to be, you know, they were wanting to be looked to. They were wanting to be powerful. And, you know, Jesus was always trying to show them, no, the real path to greatness is servanthood and humility. That's what it means to be like God, to be humble, to serve, is to be most like God. Um, and that's still something we battle with, I think, in our culture, in our own understanding, in our lives, to truly embrace that, like the song was just saying, you know, your, your kingdom is backwards, it flows in reverse, like, it's opposite to what we think, and we need to constantly um, come to God and allow him to re reprioritize and reorient our way of thinking um, so that we are in alignment with his ways and we're not just, as it says in Romans 12, being conformed to the pattern of the world, that we are being conformed to the pattern of Christ. That's the goal, to, to live like he did. And he was a servant and he was humble. Um, and I just want to give you guys a minute to discuss with someone next to you what would be, what can you think of as the best example that you could make a cultural swap for the washing of feet? If you think then it was a gross job, no one wanted to do it, you might get a servant, you might pay someone to do it, you might, you know, but you certainly wouldn't offer or volunteer to do this, especially to other people or maybe to people you don't know. It's a bit more intimate. Like what, what do you think, what's your best parallel example in our culture or in our context? So I'll give you a minute to talk about that. Who's got a good one? Who thinks I've got a good one? Hand up if you've got a good example. Hudson, have you got a good one? Buying people's shoes, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so changing a child that's not your own, their dirty nappy. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> twice. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Next level. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely get paid for that job. What's that? Cleaning the toilet. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Anyone's got one? That... Yep. <laughs> Cleaning up after other people's dogs. Yep. <laughs> that's that's yeah <laughs> taking people's chewy put it in the bin for them yep go on yep cleaning someone else's kitchen yes Eloise yeah 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 no I think cleaning is definitely fits well in that category because it isn't something you would pay someone else to do it's not often people's favorite jobs to do for themselves <coughs> let alone to do it for someone else um yeah no they're all good examples and i think it's helpful isn't it to think about these things because you could think you know you know it's a bit hard to swap in jesus and some of those examples but like yeah, it's a lowly, humble thing, but it's, it's putting someone else's needs before our own and it's loving others as we would love ourselves, which we know is the basics of Christianity, isn't it? It's like the golden rule. Like, 
it's so simple. That's really a, that's our only rule, but it encompasses so much. You know, love others, love them as you would love yourself, and you know, the things that we would do for ourselves without thinking, like getting ourselves food or getting ourselves new clothes or making sure we have transport, making sure we have a place to live, make you know. We do all those things for ourselves, and the call for us as the people of God is to live in, with a communal mindset, live with a sense of their needs, my neighbor's needs, my fellow Christian's needs. They're as important as my own, and I'm going to, and, you know, we can say that, but really, we all know as we think about it, like, that's really countercultural, and it's really uncomfortable, and it becomes really sacrificial if we start to press into a lifestyle of this because where does that end you know if you start going well it's not just my the people in this church or the people God's put in my life and well, what if I meet someone and then I feel like it starts to get a bit scary if you open up your life to go okay everyone else around me there and what about boundaries what about you know and there is, I think, a place for healthy boundaries and knowing what is God actually called, who's God calling me to be responsible for and who, you know, we each one can't do everything. But as a community together to have that mindset and to be moving into that space, you know, that, that is what we're called into. And, um, you know, it's good for us to step back and to think about it and go, where am I living? Where am I doing those things or is there is there any place in my life where that's happening or is there room for expansion is there room for greater depth you know what's God um, calling me into so as this is kind of a lead-in as you might be guessing into if you've been reading the email um, we're starting we're doing a short series on hospitality and that's me tonight and Shane next week is that right just the two Oh, shame for two. So three weeks on hospitality. And um, I thought it's a good chance for us to give a little overview and reminder about who we are as a church here at Outpost. There's always new people coming. And, you know, we're going to kind of go over some of the same ground regularly. And this is one of those times, because I think we spoke about hospitality last year as well. But at Outpost, our vision... Our mission statement is to see the family of God expand through our shared kingdom life in McLaren Vale. And we have just three core behaviors. Some might call them values, but we like to call it behaviors. Three core behaviors. So easy to remember. We don't have 12, just three. Um, And they are, anyone know? Pray first. Practice hospitality. Learn from scripture. Oh, well done, everyone. That's a good, good response there. So pray first, practice hospitality, and learn from scripture. And we've really gleaned these from, if you want to turn there, you can, Acts 2.42. It's kind of our core text. We've tried to simplify it down. And, you know, because at the end of the day, the gospel is quite simple. It's so complex as well but it's also simple and can be simplified and what we're called to do uh, we can simplify but in Acts 2.42 this is speaking about the early church um, just after the Holy Spirit's been poured out after Jesus ascended and it says about this growing church actually the heading here is interesting isn't it a generous and growing church 
I wonder if those two things are connected. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so those were the things they were devoted to, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they're reflected in our um, core behavior. So the apostles' teaching, that's learned from Scripture. So we're devoted, we see that as a core behavior. Learn from Scripture. The fellowship and to breaking of bread, that's encompassed in practice hospitality. And of course, that also, you know, breaking of bread can be seen here both as the sharing of communion and maybe that more formal sense, because that was still being worked out at that time. It was mostly, you know, having feasts and meals together. Um, And then it became, you know, over the years, it's become more of a formality in a church service. But you can encompass both. It's that remembering Jesus as you gather together, as you break bread together, as you have a meal together. We're remembering Jesus together. So the fellowship and the breaking of bread is in practice hospitality and then enter prayer, pray first. So we've tried to like just simplify it down to these core things that we think are, are so vital in the church. And prayer can also encompass things like the worship um, and things like that. But, you know, worship's an interesting one, isn't it? Like, we can easily get really, we all, we need to worship God. It's so important and part of when we're gathering together to worship him. But we can also easily be tricked into having a great time of worship, and then we can walk out and forget that our whole lives are worship. And what we do as we walk out of the meeting room, how we speak to the people around us, you know, what we choose to do over dinner, do we, you know, are we serving others, are we thinking of others, are we putting others' needs, that's part of our worship, that's part of our, you know, loving Jesus, and being consistent, you know, we want to be looking like him in every place we go to, every sphere we walk into, so... I guess I also want to give you another chance to sort of reflect on this. As you read this, you can, I might read a little bit more, actually, so you get a fuller picture. So verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meet together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So I'm slightly reluctant to do it because I know that there's potentially big gaps here, but I think it's good to reflect on, you know, us as a church, where do you see that real resonance when we read about the early church with us, you know, our lives as Christians and our fellowship, um, where are the similarities and where are the greatest differences? And just to reflect on that and, and maybe talk about what does it look like to bridge that gap a bit whilst also remembering, you know, yes, we do live in a different time and context to what they did then. And so there's different challenges or different ways that it might outwork in our time. You know, for example, you know, back in that time, they didn't have social security, they didn't have Centrelink, they didn't have, you know, backup supports for people that were poor or struggling. And there was really no nothing else except the church to provide for each other. 
we have, you know, a different structure of society. So some of those things may not be as great a need in a way that they are as they were then, but we have great needs in our society nonetheless. But yeah, just to reflect on where do you see the greatest similarities and where are the greatest gaps? And maybe even, you know, what is what does your heart get excited about when you think about what the church can be? So I'll just give you a minute or two to have a little chat about the greatest similarities and the greatest difference to we have to be a little bit generous to ourselves with the similarities maybe <laughs> all right is anyone willing to share something they chatted about? Is anyone up for sharing something they've chatted about? Oh, Crystal? I guess while we probably wouldn't sell all of our possessions and property, um, I was reflecting on during the week actually with some youth workers in my team at work that the majority of... Um, I guess, organisations that help out the poor and vulnerable are church-based. And so it comes from the churches and, you know, that's from healthcare, you know, mental health, physical health, aged care, education. They step into those sort of gaps, I guess, that the general society doesn't provide. That's true. And it's good to remember to pull back and look at the bigger picture of the church in our culture, not just our context. Um, we forget how, what an impact the church has had. Anyone else? Something they want to share? Devoting ourselves to the apostles' teachings. Like we're still pretty dedicated to reading the scripture. We're still reading the apostles' teachings. It's good. We're in the word. Do I the word? Naz? Um, the difference is that um, peop- like not as many people know about Christ and stuff. Like, uh, like back then, lots of people knew. Like, basically, everyone didn't go to church, but, like, they knew about it. Now people just have no idea. Well, it's having a big impact in that city, wasn't it, at the time? I think that's probably one of the significant differences of, like, every day people are being added and there's kind of a bit of a... You can imagine, like, unsettledness or, you know, uproar in the city from the massive change that's taking place. It's a little slower at times for us. Anyone else want to share anything? Casey, you look like you want to say something. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ready. Um... I want to read uh, John a bit from John 17. If, if you've been here a while, you know this is a bit of a favorite passage for me. So again, this is the same night in the, you know, just a couple chapters earlier, we're reading about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And this is that same night as he's walking, I think they say as he's sort of walking from you know, where they had dinner through to the gar- you know, through to the garden and then 
as he's talking to his disciples. So again, it's like the last minutes that he's with his disciples and able to, to talk to them before he goes to his death. What is he wanting to say and what is he wanting to impart to them? And what's most important for him in that moment? And this is actually a recording of his prayer. So this is not just what he's saying to his disciples, but what he's asking for from God in this moment. What's his prayer? What's his desire um, in this moment? So I'll just figure out where to start from. Okay. We'll start from verse 9, chapter 17. I pray for them. So he's praying for his disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So, what comes next is a direct prayer for us because it's a, I pray not only for these, his disciples that were there in that moment, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And that would be any of us that have come to believe in Christ. We've come to believe in it through the word that was written down from the disciples and the apostles. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. It can get a little, it's kind of almost like a little repetitive, isn't it? It's sort of repeating the same thing a little bit over and over of like, may they be one as I am. But you get the sense, the emphasis and the desire of Jesus for this to become a reality is massive. Like there's a real sense of his, you know, like intercession, intercession in his prayer for us. And I think, you know, for us as his bride, as his church, you know, we should read this and this should really pull on our heartstrings because this is like, this is Jesus. This is the Lord who died, you know, the one who died for us. This is what he wants. This is his desire. This is his dream. This is what he's done it all for, is that we would be one with him and one with each other. And it's such an outrageous thing when you think about it, like, that he's wanting to see become a reality. You know, it really does seem impossible 
that not only we could be one with God, but that we could be one with each other. But it's so important because it says part of the reason for this is that I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. That, so the purpose of our complete unity, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So a key part, maybe the key part of our witness to the world and the way that we demonstrate God's love to the world and, and help make the, it attractive, you know, like to show the world who Jesus is, what he's done, and to draw people into that is to love each other and to be so, you know, because we know in other parts of scripture it talks about the body of Christ functioning, you know, the people of God functioning as a body or as a building. We all have a part and we all, and I think Scotty spoke on this, was it last week? Last week, you know, we all have a part to play. It's like, this is not an additional extra to being a Christian. Like, we have to know that, like, our culture, our society, the world we live in is so far from the way the kingdom of God should operate that we have to constantly be, like, stripping off and throwing off the things that are trying to get in the way. And we, so many of it, those things we don't even recognize because we're so immersed in the world. We don't even realize that we are actually being more conformed to the world than we are to Christ. But we are called to love each other and be so unified in our love for each other that the world notices. And it's like, what? What is that? Like, this has to be extravagant, outrageous love. You know, we look at the early church. That's what was happening. Extravagant, outrageous love. This generous love for one another. This caring for each other like they were family. Like they had a responsibility to each other, which was so foreign. And, you know, it was outrageous. And it made people notice, what's happening? Like, what is this? It's so beautiful and attractive. It either drew you in or sort of pushed you away. It was polarizing in its you know, intensity, I think. And, you know, we, you know, the call is the same for us. Like, it hasn't changed. And, you know, God is so patient and kind and, you know, with us as we, you know, fumble our way through life. But it's all here, you know, for us to read and to respond to and to allow our hearts to be transformed by and to, you know, allow our dreams and our desires for our life to become the same as his dreams and desires for our life is. And that is going to require like some stripping away and throwing off of things because I'm sure we would all say I've got dreams and desires that aren't necessarily birthed of God or reflected of the dream here. Like, and where it clashes, where there's a clash of those desires, where my dream might clash with Jesus' dream. You know, my dream, um, I heard in a, a book on hospitality, this one author wrote something about, if our white carpet and our boundaries <laughs> are stopping us from loving people, you know, like, oh, I've got this clean house and I've got, I can't, then it's too, like, that's too expensive. Like, it's not worth the price if it's stopping us from conforming to what God has for us. And, you know, it's a huge... It's a huge thing what Jesus wants from us. He wants everything. And he wants us to be, you know, it hasn't been sugar-coated like a living sacrifice. You know, he wants everything of us and he wants it all on the altar available. 
and that is the call. And you know, that sometimes can feel daunting and scary, and it is, and we should, you know, acknowledge that. Um, but he's with us. He, we have his spirit in us. So there's this, in us, there's this desire that's like, that is what I want. That is who I am. I want more of that, you know. He's put that hunger and thirst in us for those things, you know. If we're his children, we're going to be one, we're going to be moving more and more into that place of desire for what he wants. And it's going to be, it's not going to be that hard to throw away the things that get in the way. Um, but we do need to sort of challenge each other and remind each other and, and, and look at here, this is, this is God's dream. Is it my dream? What would I sacrifice for this dream to become a reality? What part do I play in, our, in my local setting to be a part of that dream becoming reality? And it is practical and it's simple and it's doable in that the things he's calling us to aren't like, you know, majestic spiritual things. He's very practical and very, you know, he's washing feet. It's like doing the dishes, you know, helping each other. And it's things that we all are already doing for each other. You know, there's this, there's so much love and generosity going on behind the scenes. Um, but that's that, that call to, to step into that more and more and to, you know, be willing to ask God even, God, where else, is there something you're wanting to stretch me in? Is there, you know, is there more for me to step into here? Um, I, I was reading recently 1 John, the end of 1 John, and I'll sort of finish up with this. It's a little bit of the challenge, the challenge end of things, but um, I remember reading, I love the book of 1 John, and it's very... It appeals to me probably because it, it comes across maybe a little less practical. You know, you can kind of, it's like all the, the spiritual language and the, the ideals and the, you know, I love all that. Um, and then it ends with, and it always felt very clunky to me and like out of place. I'm trying to find it. After all this, you know, how are you going to end this great letter? How are you going to end it? I cannot find one John. Thanks, Beth. How are you going to end it? And it's verse 21. Because, you know, you could have ended here. We are in the true one. That is, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Like, what a great ending. Stop there. But then it finishes with little children. Guard yourselves from idols. And it's like, oh, that's a bit uncomfortable. Like, why is that in there? Like, why couldn't you have stopped the sentence before? And over the years, I've pondered that. Because, you know, again, idols is not something we think of or talk of so much in our culture. And it's, we can look back, the Old Testament. I'm reading through the Old Testament at the moment. And, you know, if you've read the Old Testament, you know it's like a constant epic journey of the different kings coming through. And either they were good and they got rid of all the idols and the Asherah poles and the altars to Baal. They got rid of them so it was just worshipping God. Um, or they didn't. Or then they built more of the bad ones, and it's kind of like up and down, mostly bad kings, but a few high points where they either got rid of all or most of the bad stuff, and, and it was about devotion to God. But I think the interesting thing is, too, that a lot of the time throughout their history, they still had the temple, or they were still worshipping Yahweh, but they were worshipping Yahweh with all these other things, and that was not 
good enough and that was not okay. It was like, no, we can't worship God and all these other things. You can't keep your options open and have, you know, all these other idols as part of your life. It's like God or it's the other stuff. It's not both. And it was not okay that they were satisfied to have both happening at once. And I think of that in our context, like, you know, an idol might be our money or our career or our family or our friendship or, you know, our desires for some of those things. And, you know, it, we know it's an idol. If it, yeah, if it's more important to us than what God's calling us to or, or if it's getting in the way of other things, it's competing with those other things God's wanting to do. And, but, yeah, it's, we need to guard ourselves from those idols like it it's not an automatic okay I've made a choice for Jesus yeah we can do that and still have our other little idols there it's that we have to guard ourselves and we have to keep pushing them away saying no to other things and yes to God it's an ongoing journey of like okay clean house well something's crept in let's get rid of that because we it's not static and the enemy's always trying to trip us up and you know, in Hebrews 12, it talks about throw off anything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and keep running. Like, we are in a battle and there's constantly going to be things that are going to try and get in. We should expect that. And it shouldn't be a place of shame of like, oh, there might be an idol. It's like, let's just be upfront with it. Let's be open. Let's talk about it. This is creeping in. This is becoming a distraction, whatever. Talk to each other. Share that. Pray for each other and throw it off because... It's going to happen. There's going to be temptation to have other, other idols. But we have to guard ourselves against that because we are here to help see Jesus' dream become reality. And it has to be possible because he's asking for You know, if Jesus prays, do you think Jesus gets what he prays for? Like, I know sometimes we don't get, feel like we get what we pray for, but do you think Jesus, if he's praying to the Father, do you think the Father will answer that prayer? Yeah? I reckon. So it's like a really safe bet for us to invest our lives working towards seeing that vision realized. And like, how good at the end of time to stand for God to be like, yeah, your dream was my dream. Like, we were after the same thing and like, it, you did it, God. Like, you did it. We're, you know, we're one and we're, we're, we became that church and that people that the world was just like, whoa, their love is something else. I want to be part of it. Like, that's possible. We can, church doesn't have to be what it's always been, what it's looked like for the last however many generations. There's more for us to discover as the people of God. And, you know, yes, it's a big, high, lofty thing, but it's also just this, as simple as inviting someone over for dinner or providing a meal for someone. Or You know, it starts in that, you know, we all take steps in that direction. We all practice hospitality with each other. That's powerful. And it's evangelistic, as I said. And when we invite others that don't know God into those times of fellowship and meals together, they get to experience that. And it's it's so good because don't you love that if anyone's here who's terrified of the idea of going out and doing street evangelism who finds that terrifying he's not telling us to do street evangelism he says 
practice hospitality, <laughs> you know? Have food and, and then share that with people. You know, it's... it's <laughs> we all have different seasons and it might be season to be invited into someone else's house for hospitality because, you know, we need each other in the body. Sometimes we are only able to receive in one season. Other times we can give, but that's why we're a family to do it together. It's not all on one person. And that's the beauty of it. Well, I'm going to wrap up there and say a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and the beauty of your vision for your church, for your people, that we would be so amazing and so loving and so generous that the world would would notice and see it and just be amazed and come to know you as well. Lord, I pray that we would be people that are captured by your vision and your dream and that we that that dream takes root in each of our hearts and becomes the driving force in our lives and becomes the thing that we you know we get up each day for to see your dreams realized that we'd be willing to sacrifice and do whatever you call us to in order that that might become a reality in our midst and we thank you that you haven't put it on us as a burden but that you your spirit lives in us and you've given us your example and you help us you give us the strength to do what you're calling us to do you don't stand aside and critique us you're inside us, cheering us on, strengthening us, and encouraging us every step of the way. Lord, I pray that we would know your love more deeply. We would receive your love tonight and be refreshed in it, that we might be filled to overflowing to love one another. Amen.